Our lesson of the day today will come from Psalm 51. This is verses uh, 1 through 12. I'm actually going to read. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we praise you for your word. That's true. It's right. Father, we praise you that we can gather with your saints today and have it read to us in a language that we can understand and hear, that we can gather together without fear. Father, I pray now for the power of your spirit in helping me preach your word. I pray that your spirit would be present uh, doing mighty things in our midst, producing an abundant harvest of good fruit. I pray that you would use your word today to mold us and shape us, all of us, men and women, boys and girls, more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loves us, the one who gave himself for us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so my sermon today is going to be on the first half of a very well-known psalm, David's psalm of confession and repentance that we find in Psalm 51. Before we dive into our psalm, I want us to consider just for a minute or so why we need a, a sermon about repentance on the first Sunday of Advent. A few things. First, repentance is one of the most foundational and necessary parts of our faith. This is the teaching of the Scriptures, and it's a huge part of our Reformation heritage. One of the earliest and most significant writings of the Reformation was by a guy named Martin Luther, his 95 Theses. It was a piece of writing which communicated much of what the heart of the Reformation was all about. So I had to remember when Martin Luther writes his 95 Theses, remember the first thing he says? Um, in this writing that was against indulgences. Listen to what he says. He says, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What Luther was basically saying is that repentance is not a, a one-time event that we do uh, when we become believers in some sense. It's not something restricted. Also, it's just a, a particular sacrament, the sacrament of penance. Uh, which is present in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Luther is saying it's an ongoing experience where God, by His grace, He turns us away again and again from the death of sin and turns us back towards the life of God. This is one of the many reasons why each and every week when we gather together, what we're doing is we're repenting collectively of our sins. We're confessing our sins before God. We're turning from our sin back to God. So this is a really simple idea to understand. But the longer I live, the more it becomes obvious to me that repenting of my sins, it really doesn't get any easier. 
to do this. It doesn't get any less painful for me uh, the longer I'm a Christian. Repentance is not a technique that we're going to perfect in this life. You would think, right, that confessing many of the same sins to God and to others over and over again throughout our years would mean that we get pretty comfortable with repentance and confession. That's just not the case for us, is it? It feels hard, doesn't it, to admit to your spouse or to your children that you have sinned against them. And saying the simple words, I've sinned against you, will you forgive me, always makes us uncomfortable. When we get around other sinners, so easily we become so blind to our own sin while we remain acutely aware of the effects of other people's sin. I feel this a lot as a parent, many of you do maybe as well, when you're handling your child's sin. But do you notice how very quickly you handle your child's sin in a particularly sinful way of your own? Some of us as believers, all of us at one point, we can so easily get entangled in conflicts with other brothers and sisters, right? Conflicts where we get lost in your feelings of anger, lost in your feelings of hurt, of being wronged. And so quickly you lose sight of all the ways that you actually contributed to the broken relationship as well. Uh, Our anger and our hurt so often blinds us to the ways that we actually sin against other people. We desperately need other people's forgiveness just as much as others need to confess to us. The second thing I want us to see is repentance is where we experience some of God's deepest, most profound changes in us. In repentance, what we're doing is that we're replaying the gospel drama of prodigal children turning from the foolishness of sin and going back home to the loving embrace of the Father. Some of the deeply satisfying experiences of ministry for me involve having a front row seat to God's work of repentance and faith in the lives of people. We can think about maybe a man who brings the dark stain of sexual sin that he's worked so hard to hide for so long finally out into the light, that he wants help uh, from God's people. That's the kind of repentance that has the power to change a person's life forever. Maybe we can think about a husband and a wife who get stuck in perpetual destructive conflicts where you hurt each other over and over again. And by God's grace, you can get to a place where you stop blaming and instead you can move towards your spouse. And you move towards your spouse by beginning to see that this relationship is broken and it's not entirely my spouse's fault. I have my own sin that I have to see, that God wants me to confess and repent of so that there can be healing, there can be restoration. Final thing about repentance I want us to see right at the beginning here is that traditionally the repentance in a psalm like this, a penitential psalm, is a kind of thing we hear about during the season of Lent. But I want us to also see this is a perfectly appropriate Advent sermon today. This is the first Sunday of Advent, the season where we begin considering together the beauty and the truth of the gospel message once again. That God became man to save his people from their sin. That's basically the message, right, that the angel tells Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. He tells Joseph that despite the appearances of what he sees, Mary had committed no sin in becoming pregnant, and that Joseph should marry her because her child was God's Messiah. 
Remember what the angel said. The angel says to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So our time in God's Word today can be understood as an explanation of this angelic message, this Advent message that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He's going to send a Savior. He's going to send the long-promised Deliverer who would save God's people from their sin. Okay, before we dive into our psalm, let's consider the background of what was going on when David wrote this. We don't get a lot of historical context for a lot of the psalms, but a few of them we actually do get a brief explanation as to what's happening when the psalm is written. So most of our Bibles, all of our Bibles, I assume, have some kind of subscription at the very beginning of the psalm that gives us just one sentence, a summary of what was going on when David composed this psalm. Uh, The subscription says, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, a lot of us know uh, the story that's summarized in this one sentence. You can read about the whole thing in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. But by way of review, let's quickly go through the story, right, of what was happening in David's life when he composed this psalm. This story involves some incredibly dark sins of David. Uh, they really start with David sleeping with a woman named Bathsheba, who at the time was married to another man, Uriah. Uriah was a very experienced and a prominent soldier amongst David's own army. There's also clearly an element of abuse if you read this story, since Bathsheba could not have easily refused the advances of the most powerful person in Israel at that time, the king. So after a brief sexual encounter between David and Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant with David's baby. David scrambles to try to hide this so no one knows. He tries and fails several times to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that the sin could stay hidden. But none of this works, if you remember. David finally resorts to ordering Uriah to the fiercest part of the, the battle that Israel is having with the Ammonites. And so he wants to arrange it so that Uriah is killed in battle. But again, he wants to hide his motives in doing this. The cold-hearted nature of David's sin is highlighted in the fact that Uriah unknowingly is the very messenger that David sends to his commander to deliver the orders to essentially arrange Uriah's own death. So now David's sins have grown, right? They've gone from adultery, abuse of power, to lies, to deception, and now finally murder. Pretty remarkable, right? Considering that all this is done by Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, as the scriptures describe him. So after David does all this, God sends him a prophet named Nathan to confront David about what he had done. And Nathan tells a story to David about a rich man who steals a poor man's beloved lamb in order to help David see the incredible evil that David had committed. When Nathan tells David the story, he becomes outraged. He demonstrates the very anger that should have been reserved for his own sin, but instead David could only be angry at someone else's sin. So we're not exactly sure when. It's likely a a significant period of time, maybe many months after this initial incident. Somewhere in the aftermath of all this, David pens this very well-known psalm, Psalm 51, uh, that reflects David's painful confession of his sin, his turning away from evil and repentance and back to God in faith. So before we move on, let's think about what are we to make of that story. That's an incredible story, right? Of this man that's called a man after God's own heart, and he does these terrible things that have incredible consequences in the life of Israel. 
What do we learn from the story, the backstory behind the psalm? Well, first, clearly you can see that every believer is capable of some colossally dark sins. This truth should not lead us to being licentious in our faith or apathy towards sin, but rather this truth should make us very spiritually sober. It's a remarkable fact, isn't it, that David, uh, God's greatest king in Israel, he broke at least five of the Ten Commandments in just this one episode. And these transgressions would have warranted the death penalty in Israel. And so this entire episode is meant to teach us that we never just cruise through the Christian life. It's possible for God's covenant children to become hardened by the power of sin so that its influence and effects can grow like a snowball that rolls downhill. This is why we're warned in the New Testament with words like Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this means that all of us here, we have to carefully consider our steps and understand what direction our lives are headed towards, either toward God or away from Him. We are always moving in one of these two directions. Also, perhaps one of the most alarming aspects of the backstory of Psalm 51 is at least for a period of time, David doesn't seem too bothered by what he had done, by the fact that he had taken another man's wife and that he had murdered him to hide what he did. People of God, you should never look at someone else's sin and think, I'm above that. I I can never do that. I would never do that. We must regularly be willing to face our own sin and temptations that are happening in our own hearts. We must be willing to hear God's word to us through the people he places in our lives. Those who are willing to do the risky work of speaking the truth and love to us about our sin. So this story teaches us that every Christian is capable of enormous evil. The story also teaches us that sinners can always come back home through repentance. David's response to repentance and his subsequent composition of this psalm teaches us you can always go back. No matter how deep in you feel like you have gotten into sin. No matter how dark, no matter how destructive, no matter how scary the sin. By God's grace, we can always go back home. Satan and evil desperately don't want us to think and live this way. If Satan doesn't succeed in hardening our hearts so that you're just numb to your sin, his next favorite tactic is to load you down with crippling guilt and shame so that you begin to think and live like someone who's in permanent exile. Some of those battle sins that we have struggled with for so long that we begin to think that there's really no way God could welcome us back, even if we repent, because we're repeat offenders. Satan wants us to to drive us towards the despair that's found in believing this awful lie that there's really no way back to God when we sin. But Psalm 51 destroys all of this, doesn't it? By demonstrating David's experience of God's amazing grace given to him, through repentance. There are a variety of ways we can apply this truth that I'm talking about, that there's always a way back home. But a really important place I want us to think about is how would you apply this in the life of your family? Parents, when we talk to our kids about their sin, or when we do discipline, are we constantly communicating that repentance and faith is how we turn back to God? Are we constantly communicating that sinners can always be restored to God? 
Are we giving our children a regular experience of the rest of this restoration by the way that you love them, even in the face of their sin? Or are we communicating even unknowingly to our children a very different message? A message that's really more about why you are hurt and why your child must do X, Y, or Z to get back into your good graces. Here's the thing about this. If we don't teach our children that repentance is our way back to God, then evil will certainly seize this opportunity. And Satan will speak to our children through the destructive voice of shame that tells them that there's no way back to God. There's no way to be restored to the people who love them the most. If our children don't hear that repentance is the way to restoration, restoration to God and their parents, then our families will begin to be places where our children work very hard to hide their sin and to keep it underground. Okay, all that's a bit of a long introduction. Let's um, pick up the pace and let's dive in now and look at the specifics of Psalm 51 that we read earlier. I've got three things about this psalm and what it teaches us about repentance that I want us to think about. Uh, What do we see about repentance and what David writes? The first thing we see is that repentance is an appeal to the grace and love of God. It's an appeal to the grace and love of God. What does David say first? It's very interesting. He doesn't really start with his sin, does he? actually begins his prayer of repentance by talking about the steadfast love of God. By talking about how God is full of abundant mercy. He's trusting right off the bat that God's love and mercy is bigger than his sin. This phrase in verse 1 translates steadfast love in most of our Bibles. It comes from this great Hebrew word that's all about God's pledged covenant love. His loyal love that's given to his people. We see David throughout this psalm appealing to God that God would do for David what David cannot do for himself. Notice many of the verbs throughout this psalm, they're imperatives, they're requests from David to God that God would do things for David out of his sheer goodness and grace that's undeserved. God's the implied subject of most of the verbs that David uses here. He pleads with God that God would have mercy that God would blot out and wash and cleanse and purge David. He asked that God would hide his face to create, to renew, to restore. And so David, in all these requests for God, um, is coming to him and graciously uh, trusting by faith in the goodness and the kindness of God given towards sinners who turn to him. It's trusting the love and grace of God. It's the first and foremost a step in repentance because without trusting this, we would never have the courage to come out of hiding and to come clean before the living holy God. Instead, we would choose the self-imposed exile of shame and despair that we so often feel in the aftermath of sin. But trusting God, God's love by faith, is how we're enabled to do the hard work, the painful work of confession and repentance. Again, our flesh wants us to believe this lie that when we turn from our sin back to God, you'll be met with this scowl of disappointment. Some of us may be grew up in homes where our confessions of sin were not met with any love and mercy, but instead condemnation and shame. And so it's very difficult to believe that God could be any different. 
that God delights to have His children come to Him and honestly confess their sin and seek His forgiveness and be restored, be reconciled. What else do we see about this, this psalm? Well, here's what else we see about God's gracious love to David. We also see God demonstrate His gracious love by cleansing David of his guilt. David multiple times asked for God to cleanse him of his sin, to symbolically wipe David clean so that David could stand with confidence before God. David cries out to God in verse 2 that God would wash and then also cleanse him. Later in verse 7, he pleads that God would purge him with hyssop and also again that he might be washed. This language of washing, especially being purged with hyssop, this language is all taken from Israel's sacrificial system where God gave this elaborate set of laws to make things and people ceremonially clean that are unclean. Things that would have been enacted and regulated by Israel's priests. This word hyssop that David mentions in verse 7 would have been used to ceremonially cleanse the sanctuary when the sanctuary is defiled in some way. So what David's implying in all these words drawn from the ceremonial laws is that he was looking to God to be his priest, the one who could wash him and make him clean of all the guilt of his sin, the ones who could, the one who would cleanse him so he would be fit for worshiping God in his sanctuary. So when we repent of our sins, we're doing essentially what David did. We're crying out for God's steadfast love and abundant mercy to cleanse us from the defilement of the guilt of sin. We're asking God to come and wash us from the guilt that we've acquired so that we can joyfully stand before God with the collective sanctuary of God's people. And we've been given an assurance of God's love that is far greater than anything David ever had or experienced. We have the glorious assurance that God has sent His Son, His great and final high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has entered into the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf, the one who's washed us clean by his own blood, the one who after offering up his own body and blood as the final sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work of atoning for sin has forever been completed. Okay, let's move on and think about what else do we see about repentance in our passage. We said it's an appeal to God's gracious mercy and love. Here's what else we see. The second thing about repentance I want to see is that repentance always involves this honest confession before God. We see this in several places, especially in verses 3 through 6. After David appeals to God's steadfast love and abundant mercy, David is ready to be brutally honest about his own sin to stop denying and hiding it. He writes in verse 3 that he knows his transgression, that his sin is ever before him. And this statement, when you think about it, gives us this dramatically stark contrast to all the hiding all the denial that David perpetuated in the earlier episode of adultery and murder. After a significant period of spiritual hardness, David is now ready to look at his sin and name it in all its ugly details. Through God's pursuit of David, uh, through his words sent by Nathan, David is ready to stop hiding, and instead he's going to bring the sin out into the light. Honest confession is always hard, right? We see the pain behind this in David's words. It's hard because it always pushes against our tendency that our flesh pulls us towards to downplay and deny and defend and hide our sin. Notice that David doesn't do any of this at this point. He doesn't qualify his confession in any way. He's ready to feel the pain of taking full responsibility for what he's done. 
And it's also in verse 4, David very curiously declares that he has sinned only against God by doing what is evil in his sight. Let me strike us as a very odd thing to say, considering that David's sin left this long trail of destruction in the lives of people. What could David mean here, considering he committed adultery with another man's wife and then had the man destroyed to hide his sin? Well, David clearly isn't making an absolute statement about sin being something that's done exclusively against God without any ramifications for people. Rather, he's making the point that behind all of our sins against people is the more foundational sin against God. This is essentially what the prophet Nathan communicates when he first asked David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? The crucial thing here is that recognizing that our sin first and foremost against God actually makes us quicker to repent and confess our sins against others. Our sins against people only have weight to them because they're all flowing out of this broken relationship with God. And so if we have a broken relationship with people, then this is often because our sin before God has not been dealt with. And we must have the courage to face this and to confess it and repent of it. David also goes on to write verses 4 through 5 that he had done evil in God's sight so that God may be justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. David goes on to say that his sin problem goes down deep, that it was, uh, he was simply broken long before he'd ever done anything with Bathsheba or Uriah. He mentions the presence of sin and evil in his life that began the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. It's another part of David's confession of sin that is clearly painful, right? I mean, who would get excited about facing the truth that you had done something that God rightly deems to be evil, and that we have a bent towards sin that's been present since our birth? When we face the reality of our sin and respond by faith, we experience the same kind of pain and repentance that David experienced. And we are regularly tempted by Satan to believe the lie that not facing the pain of repentance will be better for us than being willing to face the hard, ugly truths about our sin. But people of God, we must be willing to embrace this kind of redemptive pain by faith and to always be ready to reject the lie from Satan that his way is going to cause us less pain in our lives. And so we must constantly tell ourselves that although repentance doesn't feel good, it is always certainly good. Satan and God want us to see our sin, but for very different reasons. Satan wants us to become either so hardened to our sin that you just don't care anymore, or he wants us to see our sin but respond to it in a way that is extremely self-destructive, in ways where we are overwhelmed by guilt and shame. The evil one in the Bible is called the accuser for a very good reason, because he's only interested in your condemnation. He's never interested in your restoration. So do you want to know if you really believe that the redemptive pain of repentance is worth your time? Here's a really simple but important diagnostic question that you can ask yourself. What do you do when your sin is exposed? How do you respond? I see this all the time in in counseling, especially with couples. When someone who even loves you and cares about you points out your sin, what happens next? Um, why do we get so defensive right off the bat? Why do we sometimes stonewall, right? Your spouse or somebody else, you shut down emotionally, you refuse to talk. 
uh, to punish them. Or maybe your inner lawyer gets activated very quickly so that you begin crafting your airtight arguments and defenses and alibis and you immediately begin to cross-examine your spouse so you can prove his or her logic is clearly faulty and wrong. Why do we do this? Why do we work so hard to vindicate ourselves whenever anyone points out to you your sin? Is it because you're falsely accused? Maybe. But more often than not, I believe we respond in all these ways because we don't really trust God's gracious agenda for exposing our sin that He often brings into our lives through the lives of people. We just assume that any exposure of our sin must be shameful and it's a painful experience that you must avoid because it's all about judgment and it's all about condemnation. People of God, God exposes our sin often through the lives of people to heal you, not shame you or condemn you like evil seeks to do. This is crucial when we think about how we respond uh, to exposure of our sin. Okay, let's move on. I've got one final thing that I want us to see about repentance in this passage. Um, you see this mostly in verses 8 through 12. The third truth I want us to see about repentance is that it's a movement from sorrow and brokenness to joy. It's a movement from sorrow and brokenness to joy. As Psalm 51 progresses, you can see it, there's an emotional movement away from death and towards life. You see this at several points in the psalm. Notice in verse 8, there's a shift that happens with David from this painful confession of his sin and repentance to request for God to restore to him joy and gladness. David writes in verse 9, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. He says a similar thing a few verses later in verse 12. He prays that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation and uphold him with a willing spirit. So what astounds me about all this is that David is bold enough to pray for his own joy and gladness even in the face of these terribly evil things that he has done. That is not normally how we think about sin, is it? We so often assume that doing terrible things must equal God wanting me to feel terrible. But that's not what you see in this psalm of repentance, in Psalm 51. We said this morning that repentance certainly does involve pain and things that feel hard. It involves us being brutally honest about the evil in our own lives and the sins we commit. And it takes a lot of courage to be able to look directly at the evil that takes place in your own heart. It is not for the faint of heart to deal with your own sin. If it were not for the grace of God that moves us away from sin towards forgiveness and restoration, this process would only lead you to the depths of despair. Repentance involves confession about how we stand before God spiritually defiled and dirty, and only an act of God's grace can forgive us and make us clean. In our passage and throughout the Scriptures, we see that repentance involves us experiencing sorrow over your sin. Only those who know God have been given a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, a heart that's grieved by our sin and turns away from it. This is what we saw earlier in our New Testament reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul writes, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. But the real power and the beauty of repentance is that it doesn't leave us in guilt and sorrow. It moves us away from these things to something that is gloriously better. It leads us to the very heart of the gospel itself, 
It gives us the hope that dirty, defiled people really can be washed white as snow and stand before God forgiven. And Psalm 51 not only teaches us you can stand before God forgiven, but you can have this awful load of guilt taken away so you can be someone that's full of joy and full of gladness. David teaches us in Psalm 51 that the final destination of repentance is not sadness. It's not brokenness, but rather it's joy. People of God, is this where our repentance is leading us to? Do you believe even in the face of the sinful things you do that the living God wants to move you from a place of brokenness and sadness to joy? Do you think that God wants you to come to church and sing aloud of His grace and righteousness even after you have repented of doing something evil? People of God don't participate in evil's work of despair and shame in the face of our sin and confuse this with spiritual maturity. I did this for many years before I realized that emotionally beating myself up was not a biblical fruit of repentance, but rather how Satan wanted me to respond to my sin. People of God, this Advent season, will you hear God's call given to you in God's incarnate word? His declaration to you that the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, and that we should respond by repenting and believing the gospel. This Advent season, will you consider again how God's love has taken on flesh in Jesus and how His love is constantly calling us to see sin in our own lives and to constantly be turning back to God. This Advent season, as we reflect on the heart of the gospel message, will you pray the words of David found in another psalm? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your word, that it's true, it's good, it's right. I pray, Father, that we would be a people this Advent season that go deeper into repentance. That we would welcome the work of your spirit through your word, through the lives of people, so that we could rejoice, Father. I pray that we could see that he who has been forgiven much loves much. So, Father, would you increase our awareness of the forgiveness and mercy that's found only in Christ, so that we can be people who are full of love, love towards you, love towards each other. Would you be pleased to do all these things we pray in Jesus' name? Amen.